Welcome to Diving Deep, one of Fixing Healthcare's four programs. I am one of your hosts, Jeremy Core, also host of the Popular New Books and Medicine podcast and CEO at Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert was the CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He is currently a Forbes contributor, a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business, an author of the best-selling books, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong, and Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients. All profits from his books go to Doctors Without Borders. If you want information on a broad range of healthcare topics, you can visit his website, robertperlmd.com. Today, I plan to explore the role that monopolistic market control raises the price of American healthcare and financially harms patients and families. Whether you provide medical care or receive it, I promise you'll learn much from this in-depth conversation. Robbie, let's begin by outlining the magnitude of the problem. How much more does the United States pay for healthcare than other wealthy nations? Jeremy, as you're implying, our country spends significantly more than other nations on medical care. In broad terms, the U.S. spends approximately $13,000 per American. Switzerland spends $9,000 per citizen. Germany spends $7,000. And every other country spends less than half of what we do. In total, our country spends more in health care than the total gross domestic product of every nation in the world, besides China, Japan, and Germany. We spend more in healthcare than India, with its nearly 1.4 billion people spends on everything, including food, shelter, transportation, and medical care. We spend more in healthcare than France spends on everything, including champagne and truffles. You know, Jeremy, when it comes to healthcare spending, the US is an outlier. If that's the case, do our medical outcomes justify the dollars spent? Unfortunately, Jeremy, the data demonstrates the opposite. Despite spending twice as much as the other 12 most industrialized nations, the U.S. is last in healthcare outcomes. And I don't mean minor problems. According to the Commonwealth Fund, we are last in life expectancy. We have the most deaths from avoidable medical problems. We have the highest childhood mortality rates. We not only have the highest maternal mortality rates, mothers dying during and after childbirth, but we're the only wealthy country in the world which maternal mortality is rising and not falling. That data is shocking. How can you explain the discrepancy in cost? Jeremy, you might think that given the high cost, the United States would have far more doctors and provide significantly more medical care, but you'd be wrong. And although as a country, we do more complex and expensive procedures, the biggest difference between the United States and other nations like England, France, Japan, and Australia is that we charge more for the care we provide. In fact, there was a classic paper by the Princeton economist, Uwe Reinhardt, And he concluded, quote, it's the price, stupid. As a businessman, Jeremy, you know, you can't just raise your prices and expect the customer to pay. High prices need to be justified if you want people to purchase the goods or services. But in healthcare, they're not. Instead, the exorbitant cost of healthcare in the United States 
results from each of the sectors of the industry figuring out ways to gain monopolistic control over essential medical services. High prices, of course, do exist in the business world. Some luxury goods manufacturers, they can charge outrageous prices due to brand, marketing, advertising. And some companies, they just produce products that are so much better than the alternative, people are happy to pay more to obtain them. But neither is true when it comes to medical care in the United States. Instead, the exorbitant pricing of American medical care results from what I call a conglomerate of monopolies. Hospitals and health systems, drug and device manufacturers, and doctors backed by private equity. And as you know, regardless of the industry, whenever there is market consolidation, the result is almost always limited competition, diminished choice, and higher prices without added value. But Jeremy, there's another equally problematic and often overlooked consequence. When market leaders grow too powerful and gain monopolistic control, they almost always become complacent. And when that happens, innovation dies. And healthcare is a prime example. Can you expand on the theme of monopolies in healthcare? Monopolization is rapidly becoming the driver of higher revenue and profit in American medicine. An example of mergers and acquisitions in the hospital industry that have raised the price of inpatient care, lowered the quality, and decreased the convenience of patients who are hospitalized, particularly across the weekends. And as a result, the hospital industry is now home to a pair of seemingly contradictory trends. On one hand, economic losses in recent years have resulted in record rates of hospital and hospital service closures. But on the other hand, the overall market size, value and revenue of US hospitals, that's growing. Can you shed some light on this seeming contradiction? Jeremy, the seeming incongruity of overall market growing but a record number of hospital closing reflects this merger and acquisition activities of health systems and the success they've had at eliminating competition in many communities. Overall, those that have gained market control, they've been successful. They've been able to drive prices up and they've flourished. While those hospitals in stiff competitive markets, they've struggled. As you say, this is a tale of two very contradictory cities. Today, the 40 largest hospital systems own 2,073 hospitals. That's roughly a third of all emergency and acute care facilities in the United States. The top 10 health systems own a sixth of all hospitals and currently combine for $226.7 billion in net patient revenues. Though the Federal Trade Commission and the Antitrust Division of the Department of Justice are charged with enforcing antitrust laws in healthcare markets and preventing anti-competitive conduct, legal loopholes and intense lobbying continue to spur hospital consolidation. Rarely are hospital M&A requests denied 
or even challenged. Robbie, how big of a problem is this trend? Jeremy, the rapid and recent increase in hospital consolidation, it's left hundreds of communities with only one option for inpatient care. And as I mentioned, in these non-competitive communities, pricing has soared. Hospital administrators know that state and federal statutes require insurers and self-funded businesses to provide hospital care within 15 miles or 30 minutes from a member's home or work. And they understand that insurers must accept their pricing demands if they want to sell policies in these consolidated markets. As a result, studies confirm that hospital prices and profits are significantly higher in uncompetitive geographies. These elevated prices negatively impact the pocketbooks of patients, and they force local governments, which as you know, must balance their budgets, to redirect funds to hospitals and away from police, schools, and infrastructure products. And as hospital prices rise, so do premiums. What we've seen over the past 20 years in the United States has been stagnant wages, as the majority of companies have had to use whatever added revenue they might receive to fund these higher healthcare premiums, leaving little money for increasing employee salaries. But even if it costs more, aren't bigger hospital systems able to provide better medical care? Theoretically, they should. But Jeremy, in practice, this isn't the outcome. Contrary to what administrators claim, clinical outcomes for patients are no better in consolidated locations than in competitive ones, despite the much higher costs and higher prices. Most often after acquisition occurs, little changes except the prices go up that all the hospitals in the system are now able to charge. In the aggregate, how much of a problem is monopolistic market control by hospitals? Hospital care in the United States accounts for more than 30% of total medical expenses. That's about $1.5 trillion. It's the single largest contributor to overall healthcare costs. As we discussed, paradoxically, even though fewer patients are being admitted each year, hospital costs are rising. For this reason, if our nation wants to improve medical outcomes and make healthcare more affordable, a great place to start would be to innovate care delivery in our country's inpatient facilities. But as we said today, the problem with monopolies, it's not just price, it's also the lack of innovation. Can you give an example of what's actually possible? Sure, Jeremy. To illuminate what's possible and the overwhelming positive impact it would have for patients, let's begin with an economic concept, economy of scale. You're a businessman. You know that in most industries, bigger is better because size should equal cost savings. Ostensibly, when bigger hospitals acquire smaller ones, two opportunities immediately are available. First, the larger system has more negotiating power to purchase supplies and drugs at lower costs. Second, they have the variety of opportunities to eliminate redundancy and inefficiency. They can combine two small services into one large one. Doing so would be expected to raise quality and lower costs. 
when an operating room or procedure suite is dedicated to a specific set of surgeries or medical interventions, not only the surgeon or the medical specialist, but the entire clinical team improves. But leveraging economies of scale isn't what happens most often when one hospital acquires another. Instead, when hospitals merge, the inefficiencies of both the acquirer and the acquired usually persist. Rather than closing small inefficient services, the newly expanded hospital system keeps them open. The reason is that hospital administrators prefer to keep staff and local communities happy, and they choose to use consolidation as a force to raise prices rather than an opportunity to undertake the painstaking and painful process of becoming more efficient. What we see is that following mergers and acquisitions, health systems continue to schedule orthopedic, cardiac, and neurosurgical procedures across all of the multiple low-volume hospitals that existed before. Theoretically, let's just say there's a merger of three hospitals, and they each have three of these services, the orthopedic, the cardiac, and the neurosurgical. Rather than nine separate small services doing total joint replacements, heart surgeries, and neurosurgical spine procedures, they could combine the cases in each specialty either into a single large center of excellence for each or three centers with one hospital focusing on orthopedics, one hospital focusing on cardiovascular, and one focusing on neurosurgical spine procedures. Doing so would increase the case volumes for the surgeons and operative teams in whatever site was chosen. It would augment their experience and expertise, and it would lead to better outcomes for patients and they could provide the improved care at a fraction of the cost than running three duplicative clinical services. But they don't. Instead, patients get the same mediocre care as before. They just pay a higher price for these services. Can you give an example of another hospital innovation that could be done to lower costs and improve quality? Sure, but people don't know is that if they are admitted on a Friday night rather than a Monday or Tuesday, they will spend on average an extra day in the hospital, even though they have the exact same diagnosis. This delay occurs because hospitals cut back services on weekends, and therefore patients can't get timely evaluation. And frequently, what I'll call non-emergent, these are important procedures, but they're just not life-threatening, they'll often be delayed from Friday until Monday. For patients, this extra day, it's costly, it's inconvenient, and it's risky. The longer a patient stays admitted, the greater the odds of having a hospital-acquired infection, a medical error, or a complication from the underlying disease. Wouldn't it cost a lot more to fully staff hospitals seven days a week? That would depend on how patients were scheduled. What many listeners might not realize is that more than half of the services that most hospitals provide are outpatient, and they include radiological, surgical, and diagnostic procedures. Nearly always for these outpatients, there's no specific day on which the service needs to be provided from a clinical perspective. They could schedule one-seventh of the week's patients each day. But what do they do instead? Nearly all of these patients are scheduled Monday to Friday. 
If the elective work was spread out over seven days, there'd be qualified staff always present in the hospital so they could provide the essential services for inpatients without delay, even the services that are, I'll call urgent, but not emergent. And by being able to receive sophisticated diagnostic tests and undergo procedures soon after admission, hospitalized patients will recover sooner with fewer total inpatient days, higher quality, greater satisfaction, and lower costs. Current administrators of hospitals understand the inefficiency of the present system, but they find it easier to make the patient wait than upset the staff who are willing to care for life-threatening problems on weekends, but resist patients with urgent but not emergent problems. They'll come in from home on a weekend day to unblock the coronary artery in a patient having a heart attack, but they'll resist doing the same procedure for a patient with severe angina that could progress to a heart attack if nothing is done, but hasn't yet. How about a third opportunity to raise quality and lower costs for patients needing medical care? Jeremy, when patients require intense treatment around the clock, hospitals are lifesavers. But for patients who aren't quite as ill, avoiding the risks of being an inpatient can be equally life-saving. According to an article in the New England Journal of Medicine, one in four patients will experience a medical error during a hospital admission, including a life-threatening infection, delirium, or inappropriate medication. During the early stages of the COVID-19 pandemic, hospitals quickly ran out of staff beds. Patients who would have usually been admitted were sent home on intravenous medications with monitoring devices and brief nurse visits if needed. To the surprise of some people, clinical outcomes were equivalent to, and often better than, the current inpatient care, and costs were markedly less. And by avoiding the constant noise and light, patients were better rested and able to recover faster. Building on this success, hospitals could expand this approach with readily available technologies. Whereas doctors and nurses usually check on hospitalized patients intermittently, a team of clinicians set up in a centralized location could monitor hundreds of patients in their homes around the clock. By sending patients home with devices that measured blood pressure, pulse, blood oxygenation, along with digital scales that can calibrate a patient's weight, indicating whether the patient has too little fluid and is dehydrated or excess fluid, patients can recuperate and recover faster in the comforts of their home. And when family members have questions or concerns, they can obtain the assistance and advice through video. But it's even more promising than that. Not today, but in the near future, ChatGPT that we discussed on the last episode or a different generative AI tool will assist in this process. When trained, this technology not only will be able to answer questions the patient may have, but also be able to remind people what to take their medications. It will assist caregivers in providing medical support and educate people on opportunities to improve their health. Despite dozens of advantages, use of the hospital at home model is receding now that COVID-19 has waned. That's because hospital CEOs and CFOs, 
they're paid to fill beds in their brick and mortar facilities. So unless the facilities are full, they want doctors and nurses to treat patients in a hospital bed rather than in people's own homes. And they prefer to build new expensive buildings to add beds and to raise prices rather than lower the cost of healthcare, even when increased efficiency will be far better for patients, both clinically and financially. It's clear our nation could save billions of dollars by limiting monopolistic control by hospitals. But what about the drug companies? Jeremy, the pharmaceutical industry uses monopolistic control even more than the hospital industry to drive up prices and maximize profits. For hospitals, we're talking about half of the facilities using market consolidation. But in the world of pharma, it's closer to 100%. The approaches used between these two industries, they're quite different. Hospitals and health systems, they mainly rely on mergers and acquisitions. Drug companies use a slew of powerful tactics from legislative protection and legal loopholes to stonewalling would-be competitors and many more approaches which are legal but get in the way of the best patient care, clinical outcomes, and overall health for the American populace. The biggest similarity is not related to the specific tactics they use, but they, it's related to what neither the hospital industry nor the drug industry does very often or very well. Like the hospital industry, drug companies have become progressively complacent. They become less innovative and unwilling to take major risks. And as a result, Americans will be paying the price, both with their wallets and their health, for the foreseeable future. Don't companies in every industry try to gain market power and raise their prices? You're absolutely right, Jeremy. But remember, medications aren't like other expensive products. Take a $250,000 sports car or a $20,000 handbag. I don't know about you, but I'd call both exorbitantly priced. And by that, I mean that these retail prices far exceed the cost of production. But at the same time, in these areas of luxury, if people are willing to pay, despite a near endless array of less expensive options, then from an economic perspective, we have to call these prices market-driven and conclude that they're fair. By contrast, monopolistic pricing in healthcare, it's not just excessive, but it's also unfair. The reality is that millions of patients have no choice but to purchase their medications at whatever the price may be. And drug companies knowing that patients will have no other option but to buy them despite the higher prices take full advantage of the opportunity. You know, imagine if gas and electric companies weren't regulated when it comes to prices. In the cold of winter, they could charge 10 times more than they do today. And people who could afford to do so would spend the money rather than freeze. That's why we regulate prices in that industry. But pharmaceutical pricing isn't regulated. People assume that the high prices for drugs will be paid by insurers. And of course, for most of us, they are. But ultimately, the cost is borne by patients. People either have to personally pay higher insurance premiums, or what ends up in the end is they receive smaller salary bumps the next year 
when their employer has to fund the added insurance costs and can't use those dollars to increase hourly wages. Compared to other healthcare costs, how big is the pharmaceutical problem? Last year, Jeremy, Americans paid $460 billion for prescription drugs. That accounts for 16.7% of all healthcare expenditures. But it's the fastest growing part of healthcare on a percentage basis, and we can expect that it will exceed 20% in the near future. But as we've pointed out earlier, equally problematic as the rapid rise in pricing is the failure of the drug industry to innovate as intensely or as rapidly as in the past. As we said, this is one of the often unrecognized downsides to monopolistic pricing. When the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review studied price increases for some of the most expensive drugs, it found that 70% of these increases, counting for $805 million, were unsupported by clinical evidence. And this failure to develop blockbuster new medications can be explained by how biopharmaceutical research and development has changed over the past several decades. Can you explain what you mean? Happy to. In the 20th century, pharmaceutical manufacturers made massive R&D investments in a collective quest to discover the next generation of life-saving medications. We had birth control pills, which the FDA approved in 1960, and they've reduced maternal mortality worldwide by a third. Statins, they were patented in 1985. They've cut the risk of heart attack and death from cardiovascular disease by a quarter. Medications for HIV and AIDS, the first treatment being AZT, introduced in 1989, has saved millions of life years. You know, these and other 20th century advances, they were accomplished through a grueling, expensive, and risky R&D process, an approach that remained the industry standard for decades. Back then, drug company CAOs understood that R&D costs were high and the risk of failure higher still. But they also knew that success would not only be profitable, but it could save millions of lives. And that drove them to invest the dollars and take the risk. What's changed? Most of what has changed is the model of drug development that manufacturers have found to be more profitable and less risky. In the 21st century, pharmaceutical companies have replaced moonshots with chip shots. Strategies aimed at taking fewer chances and minimizing risk rather than chasing the elusive game-changing drug. What we see is that today, biopharmacal giants focus on monetizing what I think of as relatively easy wins. In fact, a recent report found that nine in 10 major drug companies spent less on R&D than on marketing and sales. Even COVID-19 vaccines, the most celebrated innovation of the 21st century, they were brought to market with minimal risk to drug makers. The federal government underwrote most of the developmental costs through decades of NIH-funded research and unburdened participating companies by fronting $18 billion as part of Operation Warp Speed. Drug innovations in the 20th century contributed mightily 
to longevity gains, adding nearly 30 years to the average American's life between 1900 and 2000. In this century, drug countries have become comfortable with the status quo. And as complacency set in, drug innovation eroded. U.S. life expectancy since 2000 has been relatively flat. Some of that reflects lifestyle issues, but much of it results from the absence of game-changing new drugs. But even as the impact of new medications has stalled, prices have risen massively. In 2022, the median price for a new FDA-approved medication surpassed $220,000 a year, with the average list price for more than 1,200 prescription drugs rising nearly 32% from July 2021 to July 2022. Robbie, I understand the problem, but how has pharma been able to bring to market such expensive drugs with so little risk to the companies themselves? Jeremy, the drug industry has used a variety of tactics. One is to purchase the rights to old drugs that now have a sole manufacturer. Many long-established medications that have become generics produce small profit margins. And as a result, there's only one manufacturer. Predatory drug companies have realized they can purchase the rights to these generics and then use their market power as the sole manufacturer to hike the price. And in doing so, they can keep all the added revenue as profit. There's no need to make any more investments. It's all a question of higher price driving exorbitant profits. That's what Nostrum Laboratories did with nitrofurantone, first created in 1953 to treat bladder infections. When the CEO of Nostrum Laboratories bought the rights, he immediately raised the medication's price by 400%. As we said, didn't have to invest any additional funds in R&D or get additional regulatory approval. When asked about the price increase, he told the Financial Times, quote, I think it's a moral requirement to make money when you can, to sell the product for the highest price. In many ways, Jeremy, that's the new mantra of the drug industry. What's the second way? Rather than buying a longstanding generic drug, companies are realizing they can purchase the rights to new drugs that are almost ready for clinical use and purchase them from small startups that have discovered the new agent and demonstrated, I will say, near certain evidence of clinical efficacy. All these small companies need is to bring the medication through the FDA-mandated clinical trials. But this is a pricey process, at least compared to the dollars that most startups have. But drug giants, they're happy to step in. They have the funding. They know that the market success is almost guaranteed, and they recognize they can earn huge profits by pricing the medications exorbitantly high once they receive the FDA approval, which, as we said, is almost guaranteed. An example is Savaldi. This is a drug used to treat hepatitis C. Its owner, Gilead Sciences, paid $11 billion to acquire the rights from a small company named Pharmacet. But rather than pricing a course of treatment at $33,000, as Pharmacet had planned, 
and would have been profitable for, for the startup company, Gilead charged $100,000 per patient. Monopolistic pricing allowed the company to recoup its investment in less than 18 months with $200 billion in projected revenue over the drug's lifespan. That's essentially a 2,000% guaranteed return on investment, a much less risky and more certain action than spending the dollars on developing an additional new drug to treat problems that are needed by patients. Aren't there also legal maneuvers that have been used? You're absolutely right, Jeremy. Companies use a range of legal maneuvers to obtain and maintain monopolistic control of medications and maximize profits. U.S. patents are designed to reward entrepreneurs and industries willing to take chances and willing to invest huge sums of money and time towards creating something extremely valuable. These same laws designed to reward risk and innovation have been contorted in recent decades by the drug industry. Medication manufacturers have used patents as a tool for exorbitant pricing, knowing that patients hearing about the newest drug through TV ads and through direct consumer advertising will demand prescriptions for them, regardless of the price, even when the brand name drug is only minimally better than the generics that are currently available. Consider the cost benefit of chemotherapy agents. In the 21st century, the FDA has approved more than 90 new oncology drugs. Last year, six of eight newly launched cancer drugs had prices over $200,000 a year. Compare that cost with the average gain in life expectancy for patients, which is a mere 73 days. And for patients, much of that time is spent in pain, dealing with debilitating side effects while being isolated from loved ones. In fact, many of today's high-priced drugs, many of the highest-cost drugs, are fast-tracked through the FDA's accelerated approval program. And that approach doesn't even require measurable clinical improvements in true clinical outcomes for FDA approval, only the possibility that they might add value. And the data says that half of the time the drugs approved through this process prove useless for the patient, but of course, highly profitable for the companies selling them. And regardless of how companies obtain approval, and even when the medications are relatively ineffective, the manufacturers maintain monopolistic control. They know it's a reliable source of huge profits, and they do so through legal suits, making minor molecular modifications to extend patents and various what's called pay-for-delay schemes to hold potential competitors at bay. Of course, all of these paths are legal, but make no mistake, none of them are designed to benefit patients. I suspect quite a number of listeners will want to know why these actions remain legal. Jeremy, the answer is something that you know very well, and that's the political system is as problematic as the healthcare system. As an example, drugs sold in Europe, even ones invented and manufactured in the United States, cost a third to half of what Americans pay for the same medication. The reason is a 2003 so-called non-interference law. It's the Medicare Prescription Drug Improvement and Modernization Act, and it prohibits the federal government from negotiating drug prices, even for people enrolled in Medicare and Medicaid that the government pays for. Congressional leaders during the time when the laws were passed were highly influenced 
by campaign contributions and lobbying efforts. And that influence continues today. In fact, health sector spending on lobbying has risen 70% from 2000 to 2020, and it now totals more than $5 billion, mostly driven by pharmaceutical manufacturers. In most European nations, prices are negotiated by the government based on the drug's efficacy. A study by the National Academy of Medicine concluded that a similar value-based drug pricing program in the United States would reduce cost spending by 11 to 37%. Wasn't this prohibition lifted to some degree uh, in the recently passed Inflation Reduction Act? You're absolutely correct, but the impact is likely to be very small. First, it doesn't begin until 2026, and at that time, the Medicare program will be able to negotiate prices, but only for 20 medications. Moreover, drug companies are aware that restraints are coming. They've already raised the prices for more than 350 highly profitable prescription medications. And the increase in pricing for these medications should more than offset the diminished revenue they received from the 20 drugs that Medicare and Medicaid will now be able to negotiate for. I've heard drug companies argue that high prices for drugs are necessary to fund research and development for the next generation of breakthrough medications. Is this true? Jeremy, as in most things, there's always a bit of truth. But overall, independent analysis shows that adopting the European model would eliminate only 1% of all future drug development in the United States. And if similar to most European nations, the United States were to tie the prices for drugs to medical outcomes, rather than inhibiting R&D, it would create incentives for U.S. companies to focus on research and developing drugs with the greatest clinical value, the ones most likely to improve U.S. life expectancy. Instead, they focus on the drugs which are likely to be most profitable. Robbie, any parting thoughts? Jeremy, whether in the hospital or pharmaceutical industry, it's pretty clear that monopolies harm patients. As we've discussed, they lead to higher prices and they minimize rather than promote innovation. Let's return to this theme in the next Diving Deep episode and do so for two reasons. First, I'd like to explain to listeners about the role that private equity is now playing and how doctors are slowly joining private equity ventures in the hopes of increasing their incomes and how private equity is using similar tactics to the hospital and drug industries. And as in both of those cases, patients are paying the price. But I also want to tackle an enigma. You know, given the monopolistic pricing of both insurers and federal and state governments, why haven't they aggressively battled these hospitals and drug monopolies? And why haven't they done a better job of reining in prices on behalf of patients? I think when we answer these questions, listeners will be very surprised by some of the answers. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and we'll tell your friends and colleagues about it. Fixing Healthcare is a weekly podcast posted each Tuesday night. Please follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. Visit our website at fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Fixing HC Podcast. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare's newest series, Diving Deep with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Have a great day.